0: Picture this. A group of inexperienced hikers head out into deep wilderness. They bring enough supplies for a few weeks, expecting to be able to find many more on their journey. Only these hikers get lost, and before long, are getting hungry. So hungry that they begin to pull off the only flora around in the hopes that it is somewhat edible. They push on. One falls in the river, nearly succumbing to hypothermia. Another almost loses their foot. The group splits up, with some going to wander the forest for help, some going back to their original campsite to see if any food was left behind, and some left behind to take care of those too weak to go any further. Oh, and that last group also has to deal with the murderer. Sounds like it could be the plot to many horror movies or books, doesn't it? Except here at Canadian Disasters, we deal with history, not fiction. As crazy as that plot I just described to you might sound, it did unfortunately happen. And what's more, the man who led that expedition is a name most of you might be familiar with. Sir John Franklin. Yes, the same John Franklin, who took two ships in 1845, sailed off to find the Northwest Passage, and was never seen again. And before some of you get all excited thinking I've somehow solved that mystery, let me make it clear. We still don't know where Franklin's body is, nor where his journals are that would give us the details of that fated final voyage. I'll cover it someday hopefully when researchers have made more headway with the wrecks. But for now, I want to introduce listeners to the incredible story of the first time Franklin came to Canada in 1819. Because after you hear this, maybe, like me, you'll think it's incredible that Franklin made it back at all. I'm Rachel Stewart, and this is Canadian Disasters. Before we dive into today's story, I want to take a moment to thank all of my listeners so far, those of you I know personally, and those of you who only know me through your ears. It's been a real joy getting to make this podcast, and seeing and hearing the reactions have been amazing. So I'd like to invite you to submit your own disaster that you'd like to see covered on the show. Starting this week, you can send your submissions to to Canadiandisasters at gmail.com and perhaps find them on a future episode, along with a shout out, of course. But now, onto this doozy of a tale. We'll start by zooming out from Canada for a moment. England in the 19th century really had one thing they wanted total dominance over the world. And during the 1820s, they were well on their way to achieving it. After defeating Napoleon, there were a whole host of military men who really didn't have much to do. So it was decided that all these men, and yes, of course, they were all men back at the time, should be put to some sort of use. And that use? Exploration. What better way to conquer the world than by mapping and claiming every square inch of it. And in many ways, the English Navy was suited to this. They had been mapping the coastlines of regions they were exploring for many decades by that point. But now the time was approaching where they needed to understand the interiors, the vast terra incognitas of the new lands they felt they owned. One such place was Canada, though it wasn't known by that name during this time. In his journals, Franklin continues to write about the new lands he was seeing as just America. The region around Hudson's Bay was known as Rupert's Land, the territory and trapping lands of the Hudson's Bay Company. The areas beyond this were unknown to most Europeans. And indeed, unless it was part of their traditional territories, most of the indigenous nations within Canada weren't entirely sure of what lay beyond. In 1771, English explorer Samuel Hearn set out with a group of Indigenous people in the hopes of finding great copper reserves along what the Inuit had named the Kogloctok. Hearn called it the Copper Mine River. He followed this river all the way to where it emptied out into the ocean. Hearn, using his broken and battered instruments, wrote down what he believed to be the latitudinal coordinates of where the river emptied, and returned back to Churchill, where he was stationed. By 1818, men in the English Admiralty, who had never set foot anywhere near North America, decided that there was no way Hearn's coordinates could be correct. They were simply too high up on the map. So Second Secretary to the Admiralty, Sir John Barrow, decided it was high time to mount another expedition to see if Hearn was in fact wrong. As per usual, there's some issues with this plan. The Admiralty didn't have a lot of money. In fact, they had precious little money to donate to this exploratory feat. So who could Barrow get to pay for it? Well, the Hudson's Bay Company, right? Surely they would want to know what was around their own land. And, bonus for HBC and the English, if they could stop the pesky Russians the words of their time, not mine, from expanding eastwards from their Alaskan bases, so much the better. In theory, the HBC plan was a good one. They'd been the ones to send Hearn in the first place. But the Hudson's Bay Company really didn't give a hoot about plotting landscapes or locations, the main reason they'd sent Hearn in the first place was to get their hands on yet another finite resource in Canada, namely copper. Oh, and that didn't work out so well, so they abandoned the project. Now, the other issue, one that the head honchos of the Hudson's Bay Company, comfortably ensconced in their headquarters in London, England, were not so familiar with, is that Rupert's Land was in the middle of a war. To counteract the literal monopoly that the British government gave the Hudson's Bay Company, the Northwest Company formed between French and Highland Scottish groups in 1779. During the first two decades of the 19th century, the two companies had been battling it out for supremacy in the Canadian wilderness. Now, Second Secretary Barrow was an astute man, and so he decided that Whomever he chose to lead his expedition would need to look for aid from the Northwest Company, too. Because, of course, in his estimation, the Northwest Company would also want to help such a worthy and noble cause. So, with those things planned out, Barrow set his sights on finding someone who could lead his venture. And it seemed he was looking for two factors. Number one, I kid you not, here uh, someone who could use a compass, and someone who had spent some time, any time really, in a cold climate. Surprisingly, the list was actually not that long. To the shock of everyone, including the person he did choose, Barrow went with John Franklin. Now, on paper, Franklin was an excellent choice. He'd been in the Navy since 1796, having fought in the Napoleonic Wars, particularly at the Battle of Copenhagen. He'd had experience in mapping coastlines since he was a midshipman aboard the HMS Investigator when it circumnavigated Australia. Franklin had sailed in the South China Sea, and he'd even been a part of the Battle of New Orleans during the War of 1812. Most importantly, in 1818 he had captained the HMS Trent, during a voyage to Svalbard, deep in the European Arctic. So here was a man who had the naval resume, but as a person? See, Franklin was known as a stickler for rules, a hugely devout Christian, and a man who loved his creature comforts. Before setting off on the copper mine expedition, Franklin had never had to walk more than a few leisurely kilometers, He had circulation problems that left his fingers and toes perpetually cold, even at home in England. He insisted on eating his meals on China, and he often stopped to take tea whenever he felt like it. Franklin had no hunting skills, no linguistic knowledge, and he didn't seem particularly interested in learning much about the indigenous peoples he was about to encounter. History also tells us that Franklin wasn't the first option, but he was the one who said yes. And it should also be said that Franklin was known for being intensely charismatic and charming. This would definitely come in handy when he got back to England. Franklin wasn't about to go on this journey alone. The Navy assigned four other Englishmen to the task. Dr. Richardson was the medical personnel of the team, even though Dr. Richardson really wanted to learn all about the flora and fauna of the region. Robert Hood and George Back joined on as midshipmen, but both men were artists who were called upon to make renderings of any and all places they were to visit. John Hepburn rounded out the British party as an able-bodied seaman. Back and Hepburn had both traveled with Franklin's ship up to Svalbard. Richardson and Hood were new to the group. Before they set off in 1819, Franklin took the time to go and visit renowned polar explorer Sir Alexander Mackenzie. At the meeting, Mackenzie gave Franklin advice. What advice exactly Franklin never bothered to write down, or perhaps even follow? On the 23rd of May, 1819, the Copper Mine Expedition set off from London aboard the HBC ship Prince of Wales. They were accompanied by two smaller ships, the Weir and the Eddystone. They were sharing these ships with workers and goods destined for the HBC forts. You see, when I told you that the Hudson's Bay Company and the Northwest Company were paying for things, it's sort of true. Barrow had sent Franklin on this expedition, assuming that anything the men would need while in North America would be granted by either the companies... Or the indigenous peoples there. Now, Franklin did bring some supplies tea, china, bullets, and perhaps most astonishingly, seven hundred and fifty pounds of bacon, which so called experts had assured Franklin was the best choice of protein to bring with him on his journey. This in a land full of caribou and bison. Spoiler alert the bacon goes bad before they even reach Canada. It isn't only supplies that this expedition is lacking, but men as well. British officers were not expected to carry heavy loads, their brains and backs being needed for science things. Still, it came as a surprise to Franklin to learn on board the Prince of Wales that the HBC workers he'd been hoping to procure on were not going to materialize. All the men on the Prince of Wales already had promised jobs, and none of them were about to uproot it for what they termed a flight of fancy at best, and at worst, a death sentence. But no worries. The captain assures Franklin he can pick up some men. Ten maybe, that they needed Stromness up in Scotland, where they were due to pick up more people and more supplies for Hudson's Bay Company forts before heading on to North America. Scotland isn't their first stop, though. That's in Yarmouth, England, on May 30th. The crew were allowed to leave the ship and stretch their legs for a few hours. George Back took full advantage of this, telling Franklin that he was off to visit a friend for a couple of hours no, we're we're pretty sure he was visiting Prostitute. Unfortunately for Back, the weather turned, and the captain was forced to depart Yarmouth before Back was able to make it on board. You know, Franklin was able to get a message to shore, asking Back to take a coach and meet them at Stromness. Now, had he had the money, Back could have actually hired a smaller boat to take him the 500 meters out to sea, because he could still see the ship from where he was on land. But Beck wasn't being paid until the expedition was done. So what followed for him was nine days of bumpy carriage rides and a horrific sailing across the Pentland Firth to reach the rest of his crew. Uh, He was fine. At one point, he got into a drinking competition with two men in Inverness, uh, one of whom turned out to be a local lord, and the lord invited him to... "'Come back to his place for breakfast and meet his daughter.' "'And apparently this daughter was so pretty "'that she fueled his thoughts during the long winter nights to come. "'She was thirteen. "'Meanwhile, aboard the Prince of Wales, "'things went smoothly until they reached Stromness. "'There Franklin got off the ship and spoke to the HBC agent locally there, "'demanding ten strong men for his expedition. "'The agent laughed at him and then apologized.' The Orkneys, where Stromness is located, were undergoing a period of economic boom. The herring industry had recently exploded. So where before it was actually an upgrade to go work in the frigid forts along Hudson's Bay, it was now way better to actually stay home. This was not what Franklin wanted to hear. The agent promised he'd put feelers out and see what response they got. And eventually they did actually get four men to agree... But even then, these clever Scotsmen put in a clause that allowed them to leave the expedition at Fort Chippewa and return to York Factory, thus saving themselves from the hardest part of the expedition, and also saving their lives. As they waited for back, another boon happened. A Moravian vessel was docked nearby. The name was full of missionaries who had been spending seasons in Labrador, These missionaries were known to speak and understand the Inuit language, something that would be a boon to Franklin's expedition. Richardson and Franklin duly went to see them and presented hearty greetings in English, except the Moravian missionaries didn't speak any English. They spoke German and Inukituk. Oops. The best the men were able to get was a copy of the Gospel of St. John in Inukituk and a copy of a German Inukatuk dictionary, in the hope it might come in handy. Once reunited with back, the Prince of Wales sets off for Hudson's Bay on June 16th. The Atlantic crossing seems normal by any stretch until August 7th. Then the Prince of Wales nearly gets shipwrecked off the coast of Resolution Island, due to a bad combination of icebergs, dense fog, and the desire to try and find a proper reading in dense fog. Now, as all this is going on, some men happen to see the Weir, one of the smaller ships, fall out of sight behind an iceberg. They presume everybody on board dies. And in a rare moment of clarity, Franklin warns others in his journal, not to sail at this point, because, you know, bad currents and all. Before making it to York Factory, a group of Inuit board the Prince of Wales, and they do some trading. Franklin makes it clear from his notes that he finds them a pleasant people that he believes are in desperate need of civilization. He doesn't know it at the time, but this is going to be the only trading he does with Inuit on this entire expedition. On August 30th, the Prince of Wales limps into harbour at York Flats, a few kilometres from York Factory. There they are shocked to see the entirety of the crew and passengers from the Weir, who didn't get shipwrecked at all, and actually made it to their destination before Franklin did. Once at York Factory, things go south quickly. Due to the ongoing battles between the Hudson's Bay Company and the Northwest Company, supplies were exceptionally limited, and the winter of 1818 and 1819 had been particularly rough. Many indigenous people succumbed to starvation, and there were fewer pelts to be sold than could helpfully normally be had. York factory also didn't have a solid means of transportation for the expedition. Franklin was led to believe he'd have a small schooner. The governor there, a Mr. Williams, informed Franklin that the best he could do was fix up an old York boat in desperate need of repair, so his workers hopped to it. "'Oh, and by the way,' Williams adds, We also have two Northwest Company agents captured in our prison. Want to go talk to them? They might have some info. Now, this should have been a clue to the animosity between the companies. But Franklin, excited for any and all help, takes the offer. And the Northwest Company agents furnish him with other information. After this, Franklin makes the executive decision that all of his party will not try and curry favor with anybody. They're going to take a neutral stance in this ongoing battle. Basically, he succeeds in pissing everybody off. On September 9th, the newly fixed York boat is launched into the Nelson River, ready for the journey ahead. Or not. Turns out there's too many provisions, so they need to jettison weight in order to actually get the boat to launch. Goodbye to the moldy bacon and other needed food supplies. Franklin asks Williams to send them along with agents early next year for their help. You can just picture William smiling and nodding and having zero intention to do that. For the two months it takes to reach the next Hudson's Bay settlement, Cumberland House, which was actually built by Samuel Hearn, the Franklin party is beset with problem after problem. They have to jettison yet more supplies because the boat is still too heavy, Franklin falls into a river after slipping on some mud, and he nearly drowns. He's found hours later, clinging to a branch and rescued. Smaller parties of voyageurs are using the same portage routes as the Franklin party, and he repeatedly asks them for help in moving their boat or in carrying their supplies. All say, no way. At one point, Governor Williams also overtakes him and he's shrugging his shoulders as he goes by. The snows come early, but this can sometimes be a blessing. Despite packing china, nobody thought to pack tents, so all the men were sleeping under furs, direct to the night sky, with pine boughs beneath them. So at least when it snowed, it provided some additional insulation. The men arrive at Cumberland House on October twenty third, 1819. The day they got there, the oars had such a crust of ice on them from dipping in and out of the frigid water, they were difficult to move. Here the men would remain until the waters froze enough to snowshoe across for them to continue their journey. Franklin's party had to build their own shelter at Cumberland House out of scraps of wood, because HBC was taking up all the actual rooms at the fort. But stay there they did until January 18th, 1820, when Franklin decided it was about time for them to head up to Fort Chippewan. Without enough pairs of snowshoes, and Franklin waxes poetically about how wonderful this Indigenous invention is, until they start to hurt his feet. Richardson and Hood remain behind at Cumberland House. Now it takes until March 26th for Franklin's group to make it to the next outpost, And not much terribly exciting happens during this leg, except for one night back, who was sitting too close to the fire, accidentally sets his robes on fire. Luckily, with so many layers on, he escaped unscathed. So at the next stop, Fort Chippewa, surprise, surprise, there's a lack of extra goods. And again, it's through no fault of the Hudson's Bay Company. It had been a terrible winter, and they were reduced to catching fish every day just to feed the people who were there. Richardson and Hood joined the rest of the party a few months later, on July 13th, having travelled from Cumberland House by canoe. And at this point, it was time for them all to bid adieu to the Orkney sailors who had accompanied them this far, and say hello to the ten Canadian voyageurs who agreed to sign up for this northern adventure. Franklin was initially impressed with how readily the Canadiens were to do hard work, although this opinion will drastically shift later. On July 18th, the party takes to canoes and heads north, already with dangerously low numbers of provisions for everybody aboard. As they traveled up the Slave River towards Fort Providence and their awaiting guides, the men stopped frequently along the way to make scientific calculations and tea. They also pop in along the way at different forts, trying to extract as many provisions as the HBC and NWC could leave for them. At one fort on Woostier Island, Franklin also picks up a translator named Pierre Saint Germain, who could speak Dene and French for the voyageurs. By July 25th, the men finally make it to Fort Providence. There, they are told, they can meet with their indigenous guide in the morning after the customary ceremonial pipe and presentation of gifts. In the morning, Franklin goes to meet the mighty Akaicho. In keeping with the times, Franklin insisted on wearing full officer regalia, along with having the Union Jack flying over top of him as he made his way into Akaicho's lodgings. History tells us that Akaicho was wearing a white cloak with a blanket over it. He was already smoking when they came in. History also tells us that Akaicho was also already unimpressed with his new charges. See, he'd actually gone hunting earlier that week after being so frustrated with having to wait so long for Franklin. After the ceremony, Akaicho wasted no time in telling Franklin that they weren't going to be going much farther that year. Franklin was astounded. Apparently, at this point, he still thought that with little over a month left of summer weather in the north... He'd complete his journey, but Akaicho put them straight. It was better to go only a little further north, to a spot he'd already scoped out, and bed down for the winter, ready to begin again next spring. And given that they were at the mercy of this man, Franklin agreed. It was about this time that Hepburn, back at the officers' camp, wakes up from a nap to find his tent engulfed in flames. They are able to douse the fire, but the tent is ruined. A harbinger of things to come. On August second, Franklin and his party head for the site Akaycho has planned for them. The leader and his people left a day earlier, and in total, there were thirty-four people heading to this fort, including three voyageur wives and three children. August sixth, Franklin and his party wake up to discover, for the first time, that no fish are trapped in their nets. This aggravates the voyageurs, who begin to complain amongst themselves about not having enough to eat to sustain what they're being asked to do. And it's worth saying that a typical voyageur was expected to carry 90 pounds on his back, you know, boat that they also had to carry notwithstanding, as well as paddle through dangerous waters. And the minimum amount of food allotted to voyageurs per day was supposed to be 8 pounds of protein each. I'm going to say that again. Eight pounds of protein per day each. By August 13th, the Voyageurs complaints reached a fever pitch. Franklin, in what seems very much against his nature, tells the Voyageurs that if they attempt to mutiny, he will retaliate by blowing out their brains. So, a threat of death now in the air. They continue on. August 19th. Franklin's party finally reach their designated spot for the winter, which Franklin names Fort Enterprise. In an agreed upon signal, some of the men light a fire to let a Kaicho, who is further north, know that they have arrived safely. That small fire ends up getting caught in a fierce wind, causing a forest fire to break out. One can only imagine the shaking of heads from Akaicho's camp that night. Fort Enterprises built rather quickly, with a few scattered buildings. The officers received one log house, the voyageurs were expected to cram into a smaller log house, and the indigenous people helping Franklin were just to make do. Yes, seriously, not one of them thought to think to build any warm shelter for the Dene people. Winter set in early in 1820 with everyone hunkering down. There are moments of great amusement in these months. Back took great pleasure in teaching the indigenous the art of tobogganing down a built snow hill. Franklin did not take pleasure when one of them tobogganed into him, causing him to fall to the ground and sprain his knee. There was also the matter of a girl, a 16-year-old girl, named Green Stockings. Well, okay, I'm going to come right out and say it. The officers and the voyageurs called her Green Stockings because that was the color of the leggings underneath her skirt. She definitely had a name, but nobody appears to have bothered to write it down. Green Stockings was the daughter of one of the indigenous hunters. And again, nobody thought to ask him his name. All of the accounts talk about how beautiful Green Stockings was beautiful enough that she had two men fighting over her, Back and Hood. This fake love triangle ended up with the two men attempting to engage in a duel. Now, luckily, Hepburn had the foresight to see that Back and Hood were going to attempt to kill each other over a girl who legally couldn't give her consent, and he removed the gunpowder from each of their rifles. So, it ended up being a good thing that back was sent all the way to Fort Providence and then to Fort Chippewa to check on how the rest of the supplies were coming along. After an almost thousand mile round trip journey, the answer to that question was not good. I'm going to give a quick aside here. Uh, I found this part really fascinating as I was researching. So, anybody who spends extended periods of time in the snow can tell you that it starts to hurt your eyes after a while, all that white. Now, Inuit and indigenous peoples have been using snow goggles to combat this for hundreds, if not thousands of years. But Franklin's men, on the other hand, they just straight up put drops of morphine in their eyes. And apparently it sort of worked, but you couldn't really see because there's morphine in your eyes. What a waste of morphine. I digress. All in all, Fort Enterprise was a good place to put down roots for the winter about halfway between the mouth of the Copper mine and the current city of Yellowknife. After a long winter, the expedition set out on June 4, 1821. The party headed first for Point Lake, where Akaicho had wintered, before making their way north with his group as well. They were aiming for the Coppermine River and getting ready to traverse its waters. Here, they believed, would be where Akaicho's expertise would prove invaluable. Now they were wrong. Because Akaicho didn't actually know how to get to the Arctic Ocean, having never been there himself. He was making educated guesses, so sometimes he would say it was super close. And then the next day it would change to, ooh, we are quite far away. And the voyageurs were getting antsy. On July 18th, having sent their Inuit interpreters ahead, Franklin's party makes landing at a place known as Bloody Falls, only a few kilometers from the mouth of the Coppermine River. It is known as Bloody Falls because of a massacre, with Samuel Hearn watching, Dene attacked Inuit they were unfamiliar with, leading to over fifty deaths, and the name Bloody Falls. While at Bloody Falls, all of the work that the interpreters, named Tetanouk and Houtarok, had done, vanished the moment the Inuit saw Franklin and the rest of the white men coming towards them, so there was no luck trading with the Inuit there. Bloody Falls is a pivotal moment for the expedition. Here, Akaicho told Franklin he would go no further. As a Dene, he was already far outside where he felt comfortable. Akaicho also knew that for Franklin to go any farther was almost certainly death. The party had very little food. The Inuit they had just seen were clearly terrified. Winter was coming. Akaicho thought it was best to make it back to safety while they still could. Except Franklin had orders. And if there was one thing that an English officer was going to do, it was follow orders. It didn't matter that they were going to be losing their indigenous hunters. It didn't matter that the steadying presence of Acacho would leave. Franklin had to map some territory and figure out exactly what the latitude of the Arctic Ocean was. So that's what he was going to do at any time cost. Franklin gave very clear instructions to both Akaicho and another interpreter who was leading the party to leave his men caches of food back at Fort Enterprise. This was to make Franklin's journey back as smooth as it could possibly be. Akaicho and the other interpreter both agreed, and the party split. From the outset of Franklin's solo party, the voyageurs attempted to subtly sabotage the expedition as best they could, I realize that might sound harsh, or maybe like I'm condemning the actions of these men. But I want you to know, I actually think they did the right thing. Saint-Germain and another interpreter were put in charge of hunting. They refused, deciding that there wasn't anything to hunt anyway, which was true. But really, they thought, okay, if there's no food, we have to turn back. They'd underestimated Franklin's desire to follow orders. By July 22nd, the huge canoes they'd paddled up the copper mine on were now turned into seagoing vessels. This terrified most of the voyageurs who had never actually been on an ocean before. Franklin had no time for fear and told them to keep paddling and steering so that he could map the coastline. And all told, he did actually manage to get about 500 kilometers mapped in a month. But on August 22nd, Franklin had decided that the time had come to turn around. So that's what he named the spot where they stopped. It's still called Point Turnaround. Franklin listed six reasons for turning around at that point. They are as follows. Number one, the want of food. Number two, badness of the canoes. Number three, the advanced state of the season. Number four, the impossibility of reaching Hudson's Bay. Because yeah, at one point they honestly thought that that would just be feasible, that they'd map some coastline and make it back down to Hudson's Bay. Number five, the long journey back. And number six, the dissatisfaction of the men. Now, having decided to turn around, Franklin then spent another five days at Point Turnaround wasting precious resources in the hopes that another English expedition that was a, sort of around the area trying to find the Northwest Passage would magically appear and save them. It did not. And here comes what I would consider to be the major error of this whole endeavor. You see, the reason Samuel Hearn couldn't get exact latitudinal coordinates when he found the mouth of the Coppermine River is because he was so close to Magnetic North that pretty much all of the Canadian tundra was an area of compass unreliability. Now, with other instruments, and a few decades later, Franklin was able to get the correct coordinates, but he still didn't have an instrument that worked in order to get him back to Fort Enterprise. The compass was still unreliable. Okay, you might be thinking to yourself. The safest way would then be to retrace your steps and head back to the Coppermine River, which makes a lot of sense. But Franklin decided they'd take a shortcut. A shortcut that A, nobody had ever traveled, and B, actually didn't exist. You see, at that time, most of the eastern-northwest territories, and none of it, were labeled on the map as a blank space called barren lands. You know it lives in barren lands? Pretty much nothing. But, nope, that's where Franklin decided they'd go. And the Voyageurs had just about had it at that point. By the time the Pemmican ran out on September 4th, which was their last reliable source of food, these poor men had been carrying their 90 pounds day in and day out on little to no sustenance. Is it any wonder then that some of them dropped one of the canoes? it's pretty likely to be that they literally couldn't carry it anymore. It was the same thing when they accidentally dropped the fishing nets a little while later, until the other canoe tumbled, much to Franklin's frustration. Now, granted, Franklin wasn't carrying anything, so I don't know what he could say. As per its name at the time, the barren lands were barren. Periodically, the men would come across a wolf carcass, And would cook the rotten bones over the fire until they could get the marrow inside. This wasn't great, digestively speaking. The char on the bones gave the men's mouths ulcers. The marrow that they ate was so astringent that it actually took skin right off their lips. But wolf bones were considered the creme de la creme of what they found out there, most of the time, if they found anything, it was lichen. And from a sustenance perspective, perhaps the nicest thing you can say about tundra lichen is that it was at least edible. So you see, the lichen, which was pulled from rocks, that the voyageurs quickly called trip de roche, it, it did fill one stomach. It also induced diarrhea, which is not ideal when you're trying to make it back to civilization. By September 26th, by some miracle, the men accidentally found themselves back at the Coppermine River. So, hooray, you might be thinking, the men got through the barren lands, smooth sailing from here on out. Except the men have no boats now, there's no way to cross the river. The men end up spending a week on the shores of the Coppermine trying to figure out how to get across. As the men think, Huotarok offers to try and go hunting, get some meat for the group. He's never seen again. It's believed he attempted to find a group of Inuit to survive with. Dr. Richardson decided it was his time to take one for the team. He thought that if he could swim across the river, whose water is freezing cold 12 months of the year, with a line, then uh, they can just tow the men across one at a time. And as the good doctor prepares to dive, his foot managed to find a rusty old Inuit carving tool. The skin on his foot is sliced to the bone, but he soldiers on, swimming as hard against the current as hypothermia rapidly sets in. He makes it about halfway before the right side of his body seizes up. He can't swim. The men try and pull him back to shore as quickly as possible, And once they manage to get him on land, Franklin orders that Richardson be put near the fire, and two of the burliest voyageurs are instructed to spoon him on either side to get him back to warmth. Richardson won't regain full use of his body for weeks. Saint-Germain sets to work next, attempting to build a makeshift boat. On October 4th, his efforts are rewarded. He manages to set sail across the raging waters. And one at a time, the men and scant remaining supplies are forded over, the canoe dropping lower and lower into the river each time. It soaks their clothes and ruins some of their equipment, including some journals. With little time to waste, the party presses on. Two voyageurs collapse on October 6th. Nobody has the strength to carry them along and so they're left where they were. After this, the party splits into three groups. Franklin sends back, along with Saint-Germain, and two of the hardiest voyageurs left, Bellanger and Beauparlant, to Fort Enterprise. There, Franklin hopes they can pick up supplies and deliver them to the rest of the party. Dr. Richardson, still half-paralyzed from his river excursion, asks to stay at a campsite and rest along with Hepburn and Hood. Franklin grants the request. Franklin takes everybody else on a slow march where he hopes to be able to meet the supplies halfway. One voyageur, a Michel Terrohauté, begs to be allowed to stay back at the camp. After a day, Franklin agrees to let Michel and Jean-Baptiste Bellin head back. Two miles later, another two voyageurs head back to join the campsite group. October 12th. Back's group, having reached Fort Enterprise, find it empty. All that's left are some animal skins that have been discarded in a pile of wood. Increasingly desperate to eat, Back and his group take to the nearby forest, hoping to find a Kaicho hunting somewhere. Only a few hours after Back left, Franklin's party made it to Fort Enterprise. They were horrified to discover the same scene Back had found, along with an additional note explaining that Back was going off for more supplies. The men begin to warm up and try to get any nutrients that they can from sucking on the animal skins. And as if that wasn't bad enough, let's head back to the campsite. Two days after Franklin's party had left, Michel comes to the hood site, bearing cuts of meat. He tells the men that he managed to kill a caribou along his way back. The men, having not seen or eaten meat in nearly two weeks, devour it. Over the next few days, Michel starts acting quite odd. Hours will go by with him disappearing. Sometimes he'll come back with more meat, claiming to be a wolf, claiming to be a rabbit. The doctor notes that none of this tastes like any meat he's had before. Michel is also erratic, talking to himself and just generally acting odd. At one point, when Hepburn suggests that he should try hunting, Michel's response is to tell Hepburn that there's nothing to hunt, so they'd better just kill and eat him is not a happy thought. On October 20th, Michel, paranoid, and Hood, worn out, reading his scriptures, are left close together by the campsite as Richardson and Hepburn go for a short walk to find more trip de roche. A shot rings out. Richardson and Hepburn rush back to the campsite to find Hood with a gunshot wound in the back of his head. Michel claims Hood shot himself. The other two remain convinced that Michel shot Hood. Two days later, at the first opportunity to speak alone, Richardson and Hepburn resolve to do away with Michel to protect themselves. Later that afternoon, Richardson kills him with a shot to the head. It's believed that the mysterious meat Michel brought the men was in fact the remains of the Voyageurs who had elected to go back with him. But little is known about what actually happened out there, because cannibalism is a big no-no in pretty much every circle imaginable around the world, and certainly unimaginable in an admiralty report. Things aren't going much better with the other groups at this point. Beauparlant freezes to death. Belanger gets tasked by back to bring another message to Franklin. And on his way back to Fort Enterprise, Belanger manages to fall into some rapids for the third time. And he needs to be treated as best as possible for hypothermia once he reaches Franklin. Now, Franklin's group have already eaten their extra leather shoes, sucking on the skins for sustenance and having done the skins that have left behind, they're just slowly waiting to die. By the time Richardson and Hepburn make it to Fort Enterprise, the men there can barely do more than blink at them and make some pained moans. Richardson actually asks everybody to try and sound a little happier, because he feels like he just entered a tomb. Now, once they arrive, everybody does perk up, because Hepburn manages to shoot a partridge, so all the men eat a piece of meat for the first time in a month. Three days later, with no more meat, two more voyageurs die from starvation. Incredibly, Back and the rest of his team actually do find a on November fourth. A was floored to see Back, who angrily demanded to know where the cache of food they were promised was the indigenous leader apologizes, telling back that three of his best hunters drowned in the lake that summer while they were fishing. And so they couldn't actually give any extra meat away. Plus, Akaicho tells them, he honestly thought Franklin and the whole party were going to die. So he didn't see the point of putting any extra food away. But never one to be rude. Akaicho refuses to let anybody suffer So he sent some of his men with food to Fort Enterprise. Those hunters arrived on November 7th. The records tell us the Indigenous men wept at the pitiful sight of the party, who by that point were just piling bodies in the corner. So all told, of the party of 22 that actually set out for the Coppermine River after Fort Enterprise a few months earlier, 11 of them had died and perhaps the worst statistic is that of the 15 Voyageurs that signed on with the expedition, only five survived. No doubt because the Voyageurs were the ones doing all the heavy lifting. All the men were nursed slowly back to health that winter. The indigenous peoples helped them immensely in regaining their strength. By July 14th, 1822, the remaining party members reached York factory. Then they prepared to sail home to England. By this time, through the Voyageur Information Pipeline, both the Hudson's Bay Company and the Northwest Company knew what a complete and utter disaster the Coppermine Expedition had been. Blame was placed squarely on Franklin and his inability to plan correctly. But back in England... Franklin was being regarded as a hero. His journals, which he'd borrowed heavily from the other party members, were an instant bestseller. Everybody wanted to hear all about the man who ate his boots, as though this tenacity in the face of hunger was to be applauded. And that same statistic I gave about the Voyageurs dying in higher numbers... The Admiralty actually used that to prove their superiority. Obviously, their British officers didn't succumb to hunger because they were made of stronger stuff. So let the collective eye-rolling begin. Somewhere between the cannibalism, the lack of good leadership, and the inability to properly praise the Indigenous peoples, you would think that Franklin was destined for a cushy desk job for the rest of his life. But uh, no... Only a couple of years later, the Admiralty actually sent him back to Canada to map yet more coastline. Now, at least that time wasn't quite as bad. And they learned from some of their mistakes. This time, Franklin took comfortable coaches and some ships all the way to Cumberland House. He also packed a lot more supplies. Now, unbelievably, Tatanoke, the Inuit translator actually acted as a translator for Franklin again and he's credited with most of the success for Franklin's second expedition. Over 20 years later, the Admiralty decided to try once more for that elusive Northwest Passage. They sent Franklin off with the Erebus in terror. Well, like I said, we still don't know exactly what happened to that expedition, but we do know that Franklin still believed that the Inuit were a less civilized race by the time he went in the 1840s. So it's pretty clear he continued to not listen to the advice of local peoples. But as I said, that's a disaster for another day. I'm Rachel Stewart, and this has been Canadian Disasters. True North Strong and destructive